Welcome to For the Record, an unfiltered view on current trends and timeless advice for surviving in the aesthetics industry. Whether you're an injector, practice owner, sales rep, or marketer, it's time to set the record straight. Each week, we cut through the chaos and showcase diverse perspectives and winning ideas from the best minds in the industry. I'm your host, Dr. Tiffany Hall, Chief Growth Officer at Aesthetic Record. Now, let's get started on this week's episode. Hey guys, welcome back for another episode of For the Record. This is episode 39 in season two. And today we're going to talk about all things business, specifically mergers and acquisitions. We have today with us an expert in the field, relatively new to aesthetics. A few years in, we met, I think, in 2020 during Aesthetic Next Virtual. And I met Ben on a coffee shop date. We were kind of learning about the industry together and figuring out what to do to propel things here in aesthetics. And Ben's come in with Skytail Group in a giant way in aesthetics, blazing trails, making a huge difference, helping practices to connect with investors, getting the right value for the practices, helping them to get set up correctly for long-term exit strategies, and really just making your mark in aesthetics. And so he's here with us today to talk all about M&A and to really familiarize us with the whole idea of exiting our practices. So Ben, welcome to our show. Thank you, Tiffany. Really excited to be here and talk about something that is really near and dear to our heart as a firm. Well, I feel like you've been everywhere, so everyone knows who you are. You need no introduction. Um, You did an AMSPA podcast with Alex, I don't know, earlier this year. Had lots of fun words that I hope that we get to repeat again today, like frothiness. (laughs) But we're going to start really by diving into Skytel, what you guys do. So those people who are listening who don't know about Skytel, Ben is the partner, started the company, I don't know how many years ago. Uh, April of 2018, so a little over four years. And has really transitioned to become this dental going from like a dental mega brand, mega house, to now really focusing on aesthetics as well. So give us an idea of what you guys do all day, what you do specifically, and how you're making your mark in aesthetics. Sure. Uh, Thanks again. Uh, Really excited. So what we do at Skytail, we do two things. Uh, Number one, we do consulting. And within consulting, we focus specifically in the healthcare space. Uh, Within that, probably 90% of our portfolio is made up of aesthetics and dental. Uh, within that, most, if not all of our clients are interested in growing and scaling. So think a large practice that's really got a growing team growing nicely or scaling from the perspective of multiple locations. And the way that we help there is we act as an outsource CFO and operational strategist. You know, our viewpoint, Tiffany, is you can't have one without the other. Um, so our team is really made up of, you know, a really nice analyst team. They don't let us touch spreadsheets and things of that nature, as well as the consultants who have actually built out groups, been CEO for private equity-backed companies. So they're able to really implement some of the changes that we're trying to make when we look at the numbers. And then I think what we're here for today, sell-side M&A. So, you know, that truly is investment banking. A typical process is a potential seller who's interested in going to market, um, we match them up with typically right now it's private equity and or family offices. I think if we do this again in four years, we're going to introduce the word strategic partner. Uh, and that's going to be an MSO in our case, uh, backed by private equity that is already at significant size, but we're not quite there yet, which is why it's so exciting right now in our space. Yeah, we're, we're infants, we're babies in aesthetics, but you used a few key words there. I think people, I come from a bit of a finance background, obviously you do, but we'll catch everybody up. When you say private equity, tell us what that means. Yeah, so private equity is really, it's a fund 
that is made up of money from investors, right? So limited partners in this case. And you and I could theoretically raise a fund and we would reach out to folks who had significant wealth and we would say, here is our investment thesis. And we would raise, let's just say, a $100 million fund. And within that, you have different portfolio companies that make up that fund. And in this case, you know, a lot of times I use the number $100 million. Uh, we've run into quite a few where $100 million is, in this case, dedicated to building up and promoting a med spa platform with multiple locations, getting to a certain EBITDA size, uh, earnings before interest taxes, depreciation, and amortization, and going from there. Got it. So as I think about this from people who are listening, thinking to themselves, like, I'm nowhere near PE money. Like, I'm I'm a little med spa in, you know, South Carolina. I'm three locations. I'm doing good. I'm profitable. This is not, for me, I'm not at that level yet. Like, what is the, you know, how does this sort of Wall Street PE idea back into the aesthetics market right now? Yeah, that's a great question. And we're asked a lot because I think a lot of uh, sellers don't realize that this is an avenue for them. So M&A at its core, you know, and I know, like you said, if you read the newspapers or watch the news or go to a, a TV show, uh, that's that those are big deals, billion dollar deals, that kind of thing. But M&A at its core, let's start with the definition mergers and acquisitions. In theory, you and I could leave today and say, hey, we should merge aesthetic record and Skytail academic example, or what our clients are truly doing the a part of it, the acquisition, you know, we mentioned we work with multi location groups. So in our case, it's a lot of, hey, there's a practice in my area, I'm interested in acquiring, I want to acquire that and maybe it's location five, that's M&A already. So that part exists. Now, what's very exciting in the case of what we're talking about today, I think, is investors getting into M&A. And what I mean by investors in this case are those private equity funds or the family offices that are truly putting forth a significant amount of money to build a platform that can be 30, 40, 50 locations before they sell to the next one. So in this case, what they're looking for is really a nice business. And it doesn't have to be 10 locations. We have some going to market right now that are single location, but run extremely well. And they're getting great, great value for that asset because they built a business that you can continue to depend on that cash flow going forward. And investors get excited about that. And so to that same point, is the goal, as I think about some of these single location platforms, is to get a really great core business, right? Let's say it's, you know, it's Ben's Botox bar. You're doing a great job with your business. And so the idea is like, I'm going to buy you or acquire you. And then I'm going to work with you to figure out how to replicate that same model 10 times, 50 times, 100 times and kind of scale across the country. Is that more of the goal that you're seeing or is it more of I just want to buy and hold this group of practices and make them more successful, more profitable long term? Yeah. So we'll start with if you've seen one investor, you've seen one investor. <laughs> uh, and, and this is why it's important that you go out and talk to multiple. What we usually see, though, in the case that you mentioned, if you were to ask, take a bet on which one, it's the latter. It's the one where I want to buy your practice and I want you to continue to do what you're doing in that practice for a number of years. 
don't mess with it. It's beautiful. I like it how it is. And then, yes, maybe if it's the right practice, we might open one or two more similar to what you built near your area. But usually we don't see that as a jump off point for a hundred, let's say. Usually the acquisition strategy is more, you know, we really like in this case, Ben's Botox bar. Uh, and then maybe across the street, we're going to look at another practice completely not like mine, uh, or at least a different name. And that's how you build up the assets. And the way that investors tend to help in that case is more on the back end, right? It's not that they all need to be named the same or provide the exact same services. It's more that they're running efficiently on the non-patient facing uh, pieces of the business. Yeah, I think to, to kind of bring it to the way that people think about businesses now. It's like a holding company in a sense. We're going to share a CFO. We're going to share a legal team. We're going to share HR infrastructure. We're going to share the things that are, to your point, not patient-facing so that we can get, A, economies of scale, but also get better talent for less money because we're all sharing a little bit of the, of the pie. So to me, I think it's a brilliant idea, but I think people are really nervous about it. Uh, I know you're hearing this in industry. There's a lot of rumblings about this is going to wreck our industry. We saw it in dermatology. The roll-ups are terrible. We're all nervous and scared. So people who come in and say, this is like the demise of the free world, how do you combat that and tell them this is actually possibly potentially a really great thing to help our industry mature? Yeah. So, you know, we wouldn't be doing this if we didn't believe in it. And I think, you know, to your example, it's been done before, I think is one of the things you were saying. It's It's been done in banking. It's been done in pharmacy. It's been done in hospitals. You brought up dermatology. It's being done in dental. We're in that space, as you know, Tiffany. And it's going to be done here. Uh, so what I find really attractive about it is this is a great way for an entrepreneur to monetize his or her work. And to us, that's really why we founded Skytail is we're passionate about on the consulting side, helping an entrepreneur build something that is a beautiful business. And on the sell side, to be able to monetize that because there's a lot of risk that takes place. There's a lot of blood, sweat and tears that our clients go through as they business build. And if this avenue were not open to them, in that case, the sale would be provider to provider maybe. And the money wouldn't be the same and neither would the opportunities for the team members. So we need to talk about that too. It's beyond the valuation of the organization. And if I did sell Ben's Botox bar to that larger group, who within my team would be able to take advantage of that, right? Maybe you have some of those people who want to work in HR at home office at the MSO. There's an opportunity and avenue available to them that wasn't available before. Uh, a lot of this depends on who you partner with. So are there poor investors? A hundred percent. Are there investors though that take what you've built and say, Tiffany, I want you as the provider owner to focus on the patients. You're going to continue to focus on the patients. The reason we're backing you is because you built something that we're highly impressed with. By the way, we're, we don't know about med spas. You're going to forget more about it than we will ever, ever learn. What we can help with, let us take off accounting, finance, HR, compliance. Those are things that almost lose focus for a lot of our uh, you know, clients. And if you were to tell them you're able to focus on the patient, and we're not going to mess with that. We're going to take these things off you. And that's how we're going to professionalize the business. That can actually be a really, really beautiful 
beautiful formula. I mean, it's a separation of church and state. And we've seen organizations being built out that way in other spaces that I actually think is for the betterment of the patient. I've worked with a couple of groups who had physician to physician that you mentioned, like a provider buys a provider. And I think you have the opposite effect. Like the impact is completely different than that because I feel like a provider comes in and says, nope, I don't like it done this way. I want it to be done my way. And they start, you know, going scorched earth for lack of a better word on the practice and saying, I don't like how you inject your Botox. I don't like the products that you're using. I, you know, basically I'm just going to buy the equipment and the building and the name on the door. And I'm going to change everything or even, even change the name on the door, frankly. I feel like in this model, the, the owner, or the person who's building this beautiful business is protected in a sense. What they Their legacy, at least for some time, is protected because they're continuing on with the business, you know, for five years, seven years, whatever that may be. So kind of give us an idea of how that works, too. If I'm, you know, if I am Ben's Botox Bar's owner, which I hear they do great work there, um, if I'm that owner and I sell, do I stay on? Is that part of the agreement? Give us an idea how these like tuck in and all these different things, all these words you like to use. How does this work? Yeah, great question. So if we're going through a sell side process, that's one of the first things that we talk to with clients to be sure that we're perfectly aligned because um, there are some assumptions that are sometimes made. And, you know, we like to sit down and say, hey, look, Tiffany, you're not going to be allowed to go to Bora Bora tomorrow, maybe four years from now. Uh, but keep in mind that all of this is al about alignment. If you're an investor, I, as an investor, am trying to align with you as the owner. And the way to do that is I'm going to pay a very healthy multiple for the business that you've created. And part of that multiple on the cash flow is reduced risk. And how do I reduce risk? By keeping the owner on, right? Because the last thing you want to do is see the owner go off. And then what happens there is the example that you mentioned. Someone comes in, uh, someone the staff didn't sign on to work with. So that's step one usually is really like be sure that the post-close life for our sellers is very perfectly clear that they are going to ask you to stay. Four years is about average. Um, to continue to do what you've been doing, which is your point, right, is you're going to continue to do what you've been doing. Your staff, same concept. In fact, about one or two weeks before closing, it's not uncommon that we sit down with the staff and we say, hey, this is happening. We found a great partner in XYZ and we want you to know we're still going to be around. I'm still going to come in and treat the patients. You're still going to sit in the same chair that you were sitting in today. You're still going to park in the same parking spot. Your paycheck color may change. You know, there are certain pieces that will change. You don't ever want to say nothing's going to change. Things will change. But from a patient-facing uh, point of view, those things tend not to change. Because think about it. If you're an investor, you're paying some really healthy multiple to buy a business. The last thing you want to do is to do something that's going to make it go sideways and downward. So the way to do that is really to take things off that in, in this industry, we know usually aren't overly professionalized. The things we talked about, the things that if I ask, hey, Tiffany, mind if I take accounting off your hands? How many people are going to fight me on that and say, I really love accounting? Now, if I did tell you, hey, we're going to treat patients differently, that might be a bit of a squabble. But, you know, fortunately, investors have learned a really nice way to team up and partner together. Yeah, I think about the staff as being the hardest nut to crack because the staff become very, you know, ingrained in a culture, how things operate. And to say, well, you know, mom and dad are getting a divorce, you know, for lack of a better word, you're going to live with dad sometimes. But, you know, mom's still here. I think that there's probably a, uh, an adjustment period there for people. But I think the idea that some things will change, not everything will change. Some things will change, you know, ease them into it. 
But I've seen staff retaliate, you know, and again, the physician to physician owned thing. I think the investor being somewhat somewhat anonymous in a sense and kind of out of the picture and not in the business makes it easier to digest in some ways. But to that point about multipliers, how do you make your business attractive to even get someone like you to look at, you know, look at Ben's Botox bar, have an investor look at me and say, gosh, this thing is so great. What are the, the sort of key things that you see that we should do or things that we are totally screwing up in every instance as an industry? Yeah, I, you know, I think a beautiful business when you look at it, and we, we talk about this with our clients on the consulting side all the time. I think number one is know who you are. And I know some of these things are going to sound cheesy, but the end result is a culmination of all of these thoughts. Number one is who are you? What we really tried to do is get down to what's in your DNA. Okay, that's number one, full clarity into who you are. And we'll get into why in a second. I think from there, number two is communicate that to the staff. We like to, to ask our clients, okay, you have a painting in your mind, Tiffany. Bring that painting to light. Don't keep that in your mind. Paint it for me because that way I, as your partner, know where you're going, where you want to go. I know what year it is in your mind. I know what the organization looks like in your mind. And from there, I'm able to plan a year from now, we need X. Two years from now, we need Y. Three years from now, we need Z. And if you communicate that, not just to me, but over time to your team members, then everybody is going to know exactly where we're going. We like to use the, the definition of team a lot. Some people use family and things like that. We think team is the most appropriate term, not employee, not family, team. And when you think of the word team, what we're trying to really teach our clients and, and what we would suggest, even if you're not, that you start doing is go to a sports event, right? Imagine if you went to a game and you and I were on a team and I didn't know whether you were blocking or, or tackling or passing or catching. It would be complete chaos. And by the way, we would lose the game. Now, picture something where you and I are on a team and I know that I'm blocking you know, I'm blocking this person and I know that you're blocking that person over there. At that point in time, we trust each other to each do what we're supposed to do. Build your business that way, because especially as you start growing and scaling, when you as the owner start getting away from the core, if I can't be over someone's shoulder saying this is what Tiffany's Botox bar is, <laughs> if you can't be over someone's shoulder saying that, then you're going to have to depend on the message. And does everyone in my team know what that is? So to us, that's critical. That's number one. And from there, it waterfalls down. Then you start talking about, okay, take a look at, do you know your numbers? Do you know your financials? Do you know your KPIs? Do you forecast things forward? Do you measure those back every single month and look at not just your up, your down? Anyone can do that. The, the magic happens when we look at things and we say, hey, we missed on new patients. Why did we do that? Oh, well, you know what? This person just started. Okay, do they know what they're responsible for? No, no, they don't. Okay, can we go communicate that? So it's a constant making sure that top-down, bottom-up communication is there. And then from there, you start looking at things like, you know, do we have SOPs? Do we have commonalities? Do we have ultimately what you're valued at at the end of the day, especially if you're multi-location is do you have that secret sauce? Am I able to replicate what you've built? And the way to replicate that is to make sure that going back to that painting, that everyone has that painting and everyone knows this is Tiffany's vision and we're all bought in and we're all rowing in the same direction. 
direction. So putting all those pieces in place, and then it gets very tactical beneath that. But that's, you know, step one, that's laying the foundation. And then when you start putting in the columns of who's responsible for what, and that every team member knows this is my KPI, or this is what Tiffany defines as success in my seat. And I know very clearly what that is. That's when you start building something really, really impressive. And it comes through, it comes through uh, whenever we go through sell side processes. Okay. I'm over here. My mind is like chatter, chatter, thinking even about aesthetic records. Like I think about the idea of a flying V formation for the Mighty Ducks just like took over my whole mind. Like we're going to play hockey now. You know, it is a Stanley Cup playoffs. Mm -hmm. But I was thinking about even in our world, I just had this discussion last night. You and I are both speaking at the revision event coming up and I'm speaking on like automating your practice and like doing things automation. Our scale here is giant, right? We see thousands and thousands of accounts with like 10 people who actually do the sales engineering part is thinking about they're all head down on their job. Mm-hmm. We really focused on, probably two years ago, divisions of labor. Like, if you're this person, you're going to do these things. Not these things, but these things. And I feel like people have gotten really great at their thing because we've really separated that out. I find in practices, it's oftentimes just like a hodgepodge of like, whoever's breathing today, you're the janitor. Oh, you're breathing? You're going to do the Botox. Oh, you're going to do the inventory reconciliation. I feel like there's such a lack of, um, not professionalism is not the right word, but really the organizational structure in a practice that I see those who are successful have really defined roles, responsibilities. To your point, I know that you're doing inventory. I'm going to do patient-facing things. I'm going to do all the recall and retention metrics. I think that there's a, um, a gap here in the industry where we don't have that nailed down yet because we're still baby businesses, right? We're all still less than 20 years in as an industry. Thinking about dental and kind of backing that into aesthetics, how has dental solved those kind of problems and become more of like a company versus like, you know, again, Joe's Botox bar? You know, that, that's an interesting parallel. Uh, dental has a lot of commonalities with our space. And, and I think a lot of it is simply the education that's out there. The fact that it is starting to be consolidated and the things we're talking about, a lot of times in dental, the doctors at least know conceptually that these things are important. Now the execution is key. In our space, we're just now starting to talk about that. So, But in dental, we have the same issues, meaning I always remind our clients because one thing that's very important is to be open and be vulnerable. That That's how the partnership works. And I like to remind our clients, look, listen, if I went into your practice, whichever one that is, and I tried to put my doctor hat on, you would think I was the least intelligent person in the United States. You would think that, and rightfully so, and I would feel that way. Our doctors are brilliant. Our, our clients are brilliant. But they didn't, for the most part, most of them didn't go to business schools. Most of them didn't grow up reading Harvard Business Review or whatever, uh, case studies and the like on how to build a business. Um, you know, fortunately, a lot of our team members did. So, you know, in dental, we see the same thing. You have, look, this is what makes it attractive. You're in a subsector that has super high margins. Mm-hmm. So you don't have to be super buttoned up. Now you should, I'm not saying you don't have to, like it's an excuse, like, because the difference between a 20% margin practice and a 25% margin practice, you start doing the numbers on that. That's significant as you're running your business, you start putting multipliers on that. Then, then you start crying when you leave that on the table. Right? So, um, we have the same challenges there. I think the biggest difference is simply the education of, I know what I in theory should do, 
But where we come in there is the same concept is I know theoretically what I should do to business build, to build something that theoretically can outlast me and outlive me. That's a beautiful business, right? When the owner no longer has to show up in theory, can it run without you the same way? That's what we're aiming for. That's our North Star usually. Um, and then the execution piece is a big part of it. So same same challenges. So and I think sort of about, you know, this whole idea with our industry and where we are as, you know, as practices, what is like the most popular? Well, let me, let me back up a second. Thinking about investors, let's go back to that. Mm-hmm. If I'm on the market shopping for one, because, you know, they're all coming to me asking for my amazing Botox bar. What are the things that I look for, you know, that you look for to try to connect me to the right partner? Because I feel like we get asked a lot of AR for investment money all the time. And, you know, some have great value to us. Some are not so valuable to us. But also finding out, do they do partial investment or is it like a full full out, you know, I want to buy you out? Is that even a reality here now? Can they do an investment or is it all, you know, you buy the whole thing? Like give us an idea of how we shop around for our best partner. Yeah, I mean, the way that we do it is investors are going to do due diligence on you, right? They're going to ask everything about your business. We like to say you need to be the, you're in the driver's seat. You're the business owner. You need to be the one picking the buyer. And and that goes all the way to the genesis of even having the thought to sell. So number one, my suggestion would be you control when you want to sell, why you want to sell. And in order to do that, you have to be somewhat educated as to the why. Why is it that you're selling? And it could be you know, I do want to be done in five years. It could be, you know what, I've built something significant and I want to de-risk and I want to take some chips off the table. Uh, it could be that you want to build something significant with a partner. Whatever your why is, make sure that you're the one who picks that. You know, from there, I would suggest you pick the investors. Don't let them come to you because at that point in time, they're picking you. They're picking what they want to pay for you. They're picking the structure that they want to have on you. You're the one who has a choice here. So you, in theory, and this is what we do. I mean, you know, you, in theory, can go to 20 investors and say, hey, I'm selling. Who's interested? Because some of the things that you're going to want to take into account is how long do you want to stay? What type of investor are you looking for? Some investors want to rebrand everything. Some want to leave your brand. Does that matter to you or not? That's just a, an example, but it's an example. Um how much equity do you want to roll into my business as the investor? Some do 10%, some go up to 40%. Neither answer is right or wrong, but these are all points that you're going to see on the deal structure that you want to be sure that you're very clear on. And $10 million on the table is different as you look at every LOI. We actually compare them side by side. And it gets tough getting to apples to apples comparison. 10 million could be 10 million you walk away. 10 million could be 7.5 cash, 2.5 equity roll. But oh, by the way, some of them maybe will hold back some of that cash. So there are so many complexities even within the deal structure, non-competes, non-solicit. And oh, by the way, and this is very important, that we're not selling oil wells here. You're going to need to keep partnering with these folks. So one very important thing is, can I work with them? And they ask the same question of you. This is also very important to the investors. Can I and do I want to work with them? Do I buy into their vision? And if you think of a world where you go out to 20, 30 investors versus 
one gives you a phone call and you decide let's do it, the probability of picking the right mix of what you want really well thought out is the way of let's go to multiple investors and see what true market value is for this business that I've built versus I have one offer in my hand and I don't know what this is worth. Well, I think, you know, we we thought about this early on here at AR and tried to do it ourselves in a sense, just to kind of shop around and it's a, I mean, I would say it's a ton of work. Like they all want 9 million documents of all kinds of random. You're like, does this really matter? I'm looking at business hat on like, does this really matter to you? But apparently it matters to them. So, you know, I, I was laughing with my, I was writing this to you last night. This is not like for sale by owner, like real estate, you know, you're not selling your own house. You need to have a middleman. I, I feel like you need to have a you, you know, or your company to help understand LOI comparing apples to apples or the IOI. There's all these different things that come up that you have to do. And like person doing this on their own, how screwed are they? <laughs> <laughs> that's a terrible way to say it. But I mean, in a sense, I think that you don't get the good end of the stick. But tell us, what's the benefit of like having a person like you helping us? Yeah. So, you know, here's the difference at a high level and we can get as weedy as we want. It's funny. Uh, you say it's interesting. You said for sale by owner. <laughs> I used to use that. And one day I was driving by and I saw a sign and I thought, you know, I'm actually not using it correctly because for sale by owner at least implies that I walk out of my house and I put a for sale sign and maybe I at least get like 10 phone calls. A lot of these, what we see is like a, a single solicited offer. And and it's not even that anyone knows you're for sale. It's my calling you and saying, hey, Tiffany, I'd like to buy your practice. And all of a sudden we're four weeks in and you're thinking, oh my goodness, I've supplied them, as you said, with six inches worth of documents. And now I have an offer in front of me. And by the way, now that I think back, I wasn't even planning on selling. So how do you know what the market value is for your practice? And even beyond that, again, I'm going to keep going back to structure. How do you know that the deal structure is right from a non-compete, non-solicit, how many years I stay on from a mix of how you get paid? Like, what does that money truly mean? There are a lot of things in there that you need to be really, really careful with. So I would say that if you go down that route, um, a hundred percent chance, literally a hundred percent chance that if you go down the right route, in my opinion, and I think, I don't think many people would argue with me here that if you go down the right route, you will get a better deal, not just from a dollar's perspective, but also partner perspective, deal structure perspective. Here's why again, one-on-one, -on -one, what's the probability that if I call you, I'm going to be paying maximum value of what I would consider. I'm paying for you what I want to pay for you. You know, me as the only person in this space, you have no comparison at this point. Now, you know, picture what we do, what we like to do and the way that we bring this value is it's simple at its core. It's simple. Tactically, it gets complicated, but at its core, all we're doing is we're introducing our sellers to investors who are interested in the space. Um, so our list is 74 right now. I looked it up yesterday just out of curiosity. 74 true investors interested in the space. We're not going to punt it to all 74 because you need to tell us what speaks to you. So maybe it's 20, maybe it's 50, depending on organizational structure. But we're giving you just by that a probability that you're going to find someone you like. Number two, we're creating competition if a buyer knows that there are other buyers in there, they're going to put their best foot forward. And even after putting your best foot forward, we can call them and say, hey, you know, these components in this deal structure, some we like, some we don't think are truly market. Can you sharpen your pencil again? So we have those back and forth iterations. And that's almost impossible to do if you have one letter of intent. It's easy to do if you have five. 
if you say, you know, you're close, but here's some things, you know, I'm curious whether you'd consider. So that's number one. Number two, you touched on actually, uh, and I would have forgotten to mention it. So thank you. All the paperwork that they require of you, it's super disruptive to you as, as, as a business owner, especially if you're the main producer. So all these things, you need to focus on your business. That's the other part of our job, because the last thing that you want is to four down four months in an investor calls and says, Hey, Tiffany, what happened two months ago? And you're looking at them and you're saying, well, you were asking all of this of me. Well, we need to think about, you know, value because we were actually projecting this and you're doing this and it's not going the right way here. So we're really talking to our sellers throughout and saying, focus on your business, focus on your business. Don't nosedive it. You know, let us take care of this. And we introduce investors to them at the appropriate time, but not until we have very serious investors. And then maybe, yes, we are going to dinners and, you know, showing them sites, but it's around our seller's calendar. You know, we control that, we protect them. And the other thing is it's one of the most important five things that you're ever going to do in your life. And we take that very, very seriously. That's actually why we're in this space. And I know I'm incentivized to say all this, but if I ever sold Skytail, I would use an investment banker and it wouldn't be Skytail. It'd be, you know, too emotional. But these are people who know what deals should look like, uh, should feel like what investors have XYZ to really match up the buyer and seller. Um, so, you know, in my opinion, I, I don't see why you would take on one of the most important five things in your life uh, and treat it that way. You know, there's family, friends, you know, faith. Uh, and right around that is your business. Um, you don't even sell your house that way. So selling your biggest income producing asset that way, um, I wouldn't suggest it. Yeah, I think, you know, for some folks, maybe business is more than marriage or family. You know, this is like takes over their whole world. But as I think about that, you know, the idea of like a multiplier, you know, to, to use a really bad analogy, I think about yard sales. If you've ever priced goods for a yard sale, people like overprice things mm -hmm. or like some old raggedy thing is like, this is worth $50 because my grandmother gave it to me. Like they, they attach too much emotional, to your point about Skytail, too much emotional investment into the price. And then things that are valuable, they, they discount because they don't see the relevance in their own life for it. I feel like this could be a similar thing for a person who's trying to sell their practice. And so when you mention the word multiplier, kind of walk us through what that looks like. How do you value practice? You know, is it profit today times five years? Give us just mm -hmm. the idea of how that all works. Yeah, great question. So the first thing we do is we like if someone were to call me today and say, hey, I want to know what I could garner at market. I'd say, great, I'll send you an NDA and a very loose request list. Nothing, nothing harsh, you know, some financials, that sort of thing. And really what we're looking at step one is the last few years of growth, how it's trending, because that's important. You want to know how the business is trending. But but the gold standard is trailing 12 months of EBITDA. So what is EBITDA? Earnings before interest, taxes, depreciation, and amortization. What is that? <laughs> Roughly speaking, it's, it's a lazy way to get to cash flow, to free cash flow. So you're really trying to gauge, okay, if I have a million dollar EBITDA business, let's use that as an example. That's a million dollars roughly of cash flow. That, that's what an investor is looking at. It's also a good way to measure different businesses by the same metric. So we're, that's another component to it. So once you have your trailing 12 month EBITDA, then we're talking multiplier. You mentioned it. So if someone were to call me, same, same example, I'd probably put a six times multiplier on a million dollar EBITDA business. 
there's a lot more to it. It could go to five and a half, could go to six and a half, could go to seven. A lot of this gets into the operational piece of the business and also how it's trending. Is it trending the right way? We'll put three-year projections on it, and that's a bigger discussion point. But take trailing 12 months, your EBITDA, million-dollar business, probably a six-times multiplier. And what they're doing there is the multiplier theoretically has some inherent discussion around you've built something that I can replicate and therefore the less risky this asset is the more I'm willing to pay for it let's take a four million dollar EBITDA example that's about a 10 times multiplier so you can start seeing as you build up your EBITDA your multiplier goes up and it's not because of magic it's simply because of what that's saying if you've managed to build a business to that scale I can probably take that and replicate what you've done and that's got a ton of value and 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 you know other things as well maybe there there's regional dominance something like that so all these things are taken into account but that's that's step one in valuations and then it goes deeper than that <laughs> it goes very deep i'm sure well is there an advantage i think about scale you know if you're a person who's opened multiple practices you've kind of learned the scale game right you can't be in two places at once is is an investor looking at this saying gosh ben do you have a multi-location practice i preferred that over you know, a single amazing, still great, but a single location business. Is there a benefit or does that change the EBITDA multiplier or how does that factor in? Yeah, great question. So I would say all things being equal, multi-location is better. But here's what I mean by all things being equal. We oftentimes have people call us and say, I have eight locations. And the first question, great, what's your EBITDA? Because here's the thing, what we're paying for in theory, when I hear eight locations, I'm crossing my fingers that what you tell me is you have something that you can replicate that's consistent and you have a secret formula and I can just cook that recipe over and over again and provide excellent meals. That's what I'm hoping for. Uh, you know, sometimes we get like, oh, my EBITDA is $2 million on eight locations. Okay. We have single locations that are doing that. Um, so in that case, I'd rather actually the single location $2 million EBITDA because I'm managing 10 people for $2 million worth of cash flow versus 80 people for, you know, the same cash flow. So first it's EBITDA. So if you have nice EBITDA margins in what you've built, multi-location is absolutely better. And the reason for that is if in your Genesis location, you figured something out and you're very, very and this is important, you're disciplined as to who you are. We talked earlier about DNA. We literally, Tiffany, it's interesting, we had to create an acquisition avatar for our clients because acquisitions are exciting. I mean, I, I get excited when our client says, hey, a practice is open across the street. And I look at it and I'm like, this is 80% day spa and 20% injectables. This isn't at all what you are. It's difficult to get them out because acquisitions are exciting. So we had to create something where it's like, Tiffany, close your eyes and tell me what you want your acquisitions to be. And you're like 10% day spa, 40% injectables, 10% product, whatever it is that your mix is, right? And, 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 you know, secondary city, whatever it may be. That way, we're always able to pull this up and say, remember, let's let's stick with what we're, we think is going to drive success and what we've chosen. So a lot of this is about consistency. Uh, so if you're able to have eight very consistent ones, that that's gold. Well, I think the consistency part, we had um, Jason Nicolon, who is, he has a big practice in Austin, or, and he and his wife, we talked about that, like the magic of your practice, right? It's hard to scale the magic. They've gone to two locations, now they're going back down to one because it's hard to make that 
that feeling that you get in that chair the same across eight locations. And so, you know, looking at business models, for instance, are investors more prone to want to do, you know, like a roll up where eventually we're going to make them all have the same name, all operate the same, maybe not today, maybe four years after you leave and you're gone. We're going to rebrand them all to be, you know, Ben's Botox, um, big chain, big bar chain, or do they each retain like long-term this independent feel and this, I think it's hard to scale that independent vibe or that magic that you have your own secret sauce long-term for a big, you know, big organization. So this one's fascinating. Uh, There are two trains of thought here. Uh, If you're going to have the same brand, uh, the investors that we've seen in other spaces have great success with that are de novo strategies. So, at that point, I can build my four walls. I can paint them whatever color I want. You can, I can close your eyes and put you in Dallas or put you somewhere in Ohio, and you wouldn't know where you are uh, because they look and feel the same. You have the same culture, the same system. That makes sense. If, however, you're doing an acquisition strategy, that's difficult. Um, it's difficult to buy, you know, Tiffany's Med Spa and Bud's, Ben's Botox Bar and somehow rebrand them uh, and keep the same magic that you just talked about. So usually in an acquisition strategy, what we see is we actually have one group who has said, if you never knew we existed, that's our goal. Because I want you to continue to run Tiffany's Med Spa and I want Ben to continue to run Ben's Botox Bar exactly as they are. And If our clients don't know that, that's perfectly fine. That's what we want. And then it gets into other discussion points. Like if you talk to some legal firms, what about the, the, the risk of if something goes wrong, if we rebrand everything, Tiffany's Med Spa, and if something goes wrong in Ohio to take that same example, and I'm Googling, you know, Tiffany's Med Spa looks interesting and I'm in Dallas and they have nothing really to do with each other, different former owners, et cetera. That's a risk as well. So, but then you can go back and say, but the marketing, right? For one. So there's not a perfect answer. And going back to, if you've seen one investor, you've seen one investor, they all have a different thesis on this. Yeah, I think in the marketplace right now, so of me, we we know the of me folks quite well. They're de novo. They're build a box, move in, build a box, move in. Skin spirit, very similar. More of like, I consider like the corporate Starbucks model, right? Starbucks in every town. Where we have like VO, we're we're good friends with those folks, or a franchise model. So if I'm a person listening right now saying, I want to get into aesthetics, either as a new business owner or as a person who's an injector, is there a, is it a good idea to buy into a franchise? Or do I go out on my own with the eventual idea of like going into an exit strategy, getting, you know, getting bought up and moving on with my life to Bora Bora? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Hopefully Bora Bora. You know, the, the, I'll say what we say to our clients, which is number one is it has to be something that you build that you're going to be passionate about. So as an example, it would be irresponsible of me to say, Tiffany, go do the de novo route, right? Because maybe you wanted to do franchise. Now, if you're asking me from a return on your investment, if you're asking me that, I do have strong opinions. Uh, I would go either the de novo route or the acquisition route where I am the owner of those. Because if you think about that, uh, if I have a consistent strategy, and I can go hybrid too, I can do acquisition and de novo. But if you think about that, if I'm able to be the owner and each of my locations is cash flowing, let's say 3 million top line revenues, I'm probably doing 800, 900,000 in EBITDA. And I'm, I'm able to do that with even four or five of them. I'm, I'm looking at a $40 million exit there. 
And to do that in a franchise model is more difficult and I have to live by their rules, et cetera. But that does appeal to some folks. If I have a true entrepreneurial spirit, though, I want to build something sizable of scale and, and be, you know, correctly return, you know, on my investment uh, and my risk and everything else that I took on as a business owner, I'm going either de novo or acquisition. You heard it here first, folks. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> so I think about, you know, let's say that you're 45. I'm a few years shy of that. Let's say I'm 45. I built this amazing business. I approach you because it's the time feels right. I'm, you know, I'm printing money over here and I decide to sell. Well, what do I do? I can't retire at 45. Like, you know, maybe I'm, I'm a four year run with you, you know, with your investor after this is over. Can they go start something different, different market, non-competes, non-solicitation agreements, I'm sure in place. Like, what's their next step? Because I don't just, you know, legit go to the beach and live my life out. I want to keep building and doing. So how does that work for a person who wants to open the next thing and just keep almost rinsing and repeating this whole idea over and over again? Yeah, I, I think a lot of options here. So, you know, I'll say most of our sellers are exactly in that position where they still have a lot of fire in their bellies and they want to keep going. And for the most part, because, you know, the deals we represent are typically between one and five million of EBITDA. So I say that to say they're, you know, something sizable usually. Uh, and they tend to be in their 40s or 50s. And, and regardless of age, more importantly, they want to keep going. They're not ready to hang the towel and retire. So in that case, what we say is they have a few options. Number one, We've talked about the fact that an investor is going to want you to stay on. So you can add four or five years to that just as a bare minimum. Number two, you've rolled 25% of your equity. We haven't touched on this. This is interesting. Um, in that $10 million sale example, let's just say $2.5 million is a rolled equity. Uh, that usually, depending on where you go in, what group you go in with, but that can go anywhere from two and a half to six times in a matter of four years. So oftentimes our clients actually get a bigger dollar amount in that second bite of the apple, as we call it, as they do on the very beginning, 75% of the sale. So a lot of incentive to keep growing that equity. We also have some sellers who have stayed on even past that second bite. You can continue to stay on in perpetuity if it's a group that you like, and you can kind of have your own little fiefdom within your location or group uh, of locations, depending on what you sold. Um, depending on how sizable your organization is, especially right now, because we're on floor one, you don't have a lot of MSOs backed by private equity just yet. So if you've built something interesting, a lot of leadership positions are open, you know, CEO positions, uh, you know, whatever it may be, leadership positions within that group are absolutely open right now because these things haven't yet been built. So from a timing perspective, just a great time to have those avenues open. And then, yes, if you do after four years say this isn't right for me, as long as you don't trigger the non-compete, and they're usually, if you sell a single location, just go out 20 miles or so and you can do it again. So, um, you know, these are things that you can absolutely recreate. Well, the second part of the apple, I think, is the part people forget about that you make money again. So, mm -hmm. but that's the alignment of the values, right? Of like, if you're going to stay on, you're incentivized now to make the practice very successful because you're going to benefit again for being successful. So, I think it's like, I talk a lot about, there's a great article I read in grad school called The Folly of Hoping for A and Rewarding for B. Paid all up front, you walk out, you're done. 
right? Mm-hmm. I'm rewarding the wrong behavior. I'm going to try to reward you to long-term invest in this practice with me and grow it with me and, you know, continue on. But I think that's the part people forget about. So do they get paid as like an employee during that time or they're just taking the equity? How does that yeah, work? They do. You'll get compensated at market rate. So let's just pretend you're a plastic surgeon. Typically, they'll say, okay, we're going to pay you 40% of production. Academic example. Let's say you're, uh, I don't know, an injector. Maybe it's 25% of collect, you know, however it is that they figure it out. Um, but, you know, you're going to be paid at market as an employee doing what it is that you were doing yesterday, plus that equity that you have. Man, I'm in the wrong business. I, I got to tell you. But I think, you know, you look at, let's say, Galderma, Allergan, these companies, the buying groups, like having a built-in and since GPO to get better pricing, better rebates, like you open up a whole new world of pricing tiers. And we, I used to hear this as a rep all the time. It's hard to compete with the big boys because you pay so much more than they pay. This is how they do it, right? They they do it through these kinds of strategies. And I think the problem, too, is that when it comes to multipliers and things is we don't know what people sell for, right? No one discloses that. There's an NDA everywhere. So no one knows what somebody sold for or bought for or whatever else. Mm-hmm. We have no way to know that unless a person like you comes in and says, oh, no, 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 I've done this before with a business just like yours. You're worth way more than that. Or that's a little too over the runway. Let's, you know, knock it back a little bit. So I feel like your experience with that makes it, really telling that it's a it's a good investment to work with you guys but to that point on the other side of the business consulting wise let's take m a off the table they come in from the consulting arm what do you expect or what do they expect coming in as a consulting client and how does that process work to get them ready for maybe a three-year five-year exit strategy yeah so typically you know our typical consulting client avatar is you know they may have one two three four locations that's usually pretty typical and they want to grow and scale and they want some sort of clarity into business building and so you know, some of them do have that. I'm doing this for an exit. That's not a must, though. We're agnostic. You could theoretically say, I want to pass it on to my son or I want to, you know, give it away to charity. It, for us, it doesn't matter. What matters is your why and your end goal. So when they call us, they're typically wanting to grow and scale, build something, you know, professional. And the way that we do that is we've talked a little bit about it is, you know, our initial meeting is kind of the total scope of what we end up doing, which is we try to understand where you are today, right? Like, what are, what do your systems look like? What are you measuring? What are you not? What does your team look like? Um, do you keep track of X, Y, Z if we ask you questions? And from there, we know the gaps we have to fill. The other piece is that whole, where are we going? We need a lighthouse that we're all sailing toward. So that's the other goal in that meeting. So maybe we come out of that meeting and we say, okay, Tiffany's goal is in 2026. She wants 10 practices and six and a half million of EBITDA. She's going to have 80 team members. She's going to have, we try to get as specific as we can because you know what's interesting is, and this is 100% true. Whenever we're in those meetings, whatever you decide there, it comes true 100% of the time. And not because it's a magic whiteboard, not because we have magic behind us, but you can look at public companies, private companies, actually, this is one of the complaints. If you're managing to the end of this year, that's what you're going to get. And you're not going to know exactly where you're headed. You know where you're going a block from now, but you don't know that you're going from here to Seattle, for example. You just know I'm going from here to there. And it's a short-term window. Um, if, however, you say this is where I am in five years, 
every action you take has to align with five years from now. And if you do that, the clarity that happens is unbelievable. So coming out of that meeting, we have a very clear, this is where we're going, and we hold ourselves accountable. We start building out forecasts two years out. We start talking about partnership discussions are a big one. Provider and location for once to partner. How do I do that? Bonus models too. We've talked a lot about how investors see things. Alignment. We're creating that with our clients. You know, what do bonus models look like? Am I paying people at market? Um, who do I need to hire next year? We're getting our fifth location. Should I look at a regional manager? So you're creating seats that aren't even yet filled. And every month we're going through and we're looking at here are your KPIs. Here's what we said they were going to be. Here's where they actually are. And again, the key is not you're up, you're down. Anyone can do that. The key, the magic happens in the why, the story. Keep, you know, I like to, to tell my clients, I think of it always as my six-year-old daughter. Why, 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 why? And it's not until you get to an answer that you're really then able to enact, ah, this is why that number is off. Because behind all those numbers are people in our business anyway, right? So behind all those numbers are, you know what? I actually did not talk to Tiffany about, you know, your job is to bring 25 patients in the door every day. And the way that you do that is if someone cancels, we know that Ben wants to come in earlier than is scheduled. Here's a list that you can call. So you start, you know, having really good conversation and putting things in place. So it's a continuous tightening, breaking, redoing, tightening, breaking. And that's really the core of, you know, business in general. Uh, and, and that's really what we're driving toward is like financial clarity, operational clarity, and knowing what the firm looks like today, a year from now, two years from now, you know, things like, what do you centralize? When do you centralize it? What do you bring in house? What do you outsource? Um, that's really, you know, at the core, what we're doing to where if you ever do decide to sell, you know, we like to say we have the cheat sheet, if you will, because we know what what questions investors are going to ask you. Do you know your patient retention? Uh, do you know your product mix? Do you know your service mix and the cost of goods sold behind it? Therefore, margins on each of those. Um, you know, how long has your staff been in place? How do you train? All of these questions we're asking. And therefore, our clients, when they go to sell, they answer all those questions beautifully and and investors pay for that because what you're doing is you're running a very tight ship. That's funny. A couple of things come to mind, but you know, aesthetic record, we built all these like financial pieces and parts because I think that way, like that's kind of at the core of who I am. So I've built all these things like your product mix, your cost of goods sold. We were just looking at things this morning because I feel like without those numbers, how do you know what you're doing? But it wouldn't be an episode of FTR if I didn't hate on marketing for a second. So I'm going to have to hate on social media. I find people spend money, Ten fifteen thousand dollars a month. Like, I have for I have practices who are one location who spend fifteen thousand a month on a marketing person. Shoot me now, and they spend nothing on a business coach, on a performance you know partner. Like you know what you're saying, they just neglect. Like, oh, if we bring enough patients in, that'll all fall into place. Like wishful thinking is not how a business runs. That doesn't get you a multiplier clearly, but. What is, like what do you see? Like how how does that factor in when they come into you for the first time? Like oh, I'm spending fifteen grand on a marketing person and I've never looked at my books before. I don't know what my mix of products are. Why do folks make that choice, Ben? Tell us what what the logic is that they choose the social media marketing route and neglect the core operations of their business because it makes me crazy. I need to have a reason why. You know, there, there's not a good reason. I think a lot of it is, you know, marketing is fun. It's exciting. New patients are fun. New patients are exciting. Uh, we fall 
uh, into this too, by the way. Like I actually had this conversation with my team the other day, which is bringing on new clients is difficult and you should never take that for granted. And we should always be sure to treat that as gold and to be sure to retain them and to be sure to deliver what we're doing because it's a small space, so on and so forth. So the reason I had this conversation is simply because I realized like we celebrate new clients, but what about the clients that have been with us for a year or more? So I think from a psychological perspective, it feels good when that patient walks in the door. It feels good when you see your brand, when you see, you know, SEO working, et cetera. All of that feels good. And I love it. That's great. Bring new patients in the door. It makes our job easier. That being said, you know, to your point, drives me crazy as well when you're spending all of this capital, all of this money to bring people through the door. And then you don't even know if you're retaining them. You don't even know whether your costs are in line. You don't even know how you compare compared to industry. And you don't know if I ask you today, like, what, what are you making every month? Like, what are your margins as a business? How are you operating? If you don't know those pieces, um, Again, in a high margin business like ours, it's it's it can be a lot, a lot of money. And and we have that luxury because, again, unlike a restaurant that has three percent margins, they know what the price of that tomato is. We have the luxury of not needing to do that. But if what if you did run your business as I need to know the price of that tomato? That's what separates businesses that merely survive from businesses that thrive, that give their team members opportunities, that really allow you to take home what you probably ought to be taking home for your efforts. And then at the end of the day, when your business life cycle is over with you as a primary owner, where buyers also congratulate you for that because an inefficient business will get an inefficient multiple and an efficient business will get a really rich one because they know what businesses are running very, very nicely. And they know what businesses they're going to have to either one, stay away from, uh, or two, spend some serious human capital working through. Yeah. I think three things come to mind. I think the new, the new practices, cause we have the same thing, right? New practices, how fun, how many this month? Mm-hmm. That's like going to the nightclub, right? The sexy nightclub fun <laughs> where the retention's like your warm sweats, watching Netflix on the weekend. Like, I feel great about retention. If an account stays with us for a long time, like, we did something right to keep them, right? We've invested in the right things long term. But I think the other part of that is it costs a lot of money to get new patients or get new clients. Like, mm-hmm. it's, a, it's a fortune cost of acquisition to get them in. And then to bring them there and do nothing with them is heartbreaking for me. Last thing I would say is that you make so much more profit if you fish in your own pond. Like they're already there. They're already eager to work with you. Like I just think these are the things that if you don't have a business coach or a performance teammate telling you monthly, holding you accountable to it, those goals become very loose because the sexy nightclub idea, like the fun, the sexiness of it all, you get caught up in that and you forget about, I have 10,000 folks who have already chosen me. What about all those guys? Forget this thousand who are coming in with my SEO efforts or my social media efforts. So I think there is a misalignment here that where I think dental has done a, an incredible job. You fill out your own pre-book, like you sign your own postcard, like that you get in the mail saying, hey, next month is your appointment. Like you you did it yourself. Like there's all these fun things they figured out in dentistry that we've not figured out yet with retention. So like thinking even through that model, you know, looking in your crystal ball, catching us up to dentistry, to that industry, how far away are we? What can we do to get there to accelerate, to become more like them from a retention perspective and less about the shiny, sexy things? Yeah, I think it's going to be hard lessons, right? I think it's going to be people realizing exactly what you're talking about, where if you're flowing all this marketing money out, 
are you really measuring what that money is doing? Because marketing is tough to measure. But, you know, with our clients, we do try to get there. We try to figure out, you know, to your point, bringing in a patient's expensive. We try to figure out how much does that cost every new patient. Now, from a patient retention perspective, how much does that cost? Right. And then we try to get them to where it's like, can we get 70, 80 percent patient retention? And then you can actually go through the patient tree and say, by the way, out of 10 patients, this many are going to refer patients. So it's like your own free marketing. And by the way, more sticky. If you tell me, Tiffany, like, go here to get your hair cut because it's the best place in Dallas. Guess what? I'm going there. Uh, that's a lot more powerful than SEO if it just happens to pop up in my browser. So there, there are things like that that we need to continue to harp on to be sure that you know, like you're, not only your money that's going out, but what's that doing for me? Because marketing, it's full of tentacles, right? Meaning, why did you come here? Well, I saw the sign. Well, SEO. Well, Tiffany referred me. You need to know where your patients are coming from to be sure that you really know, here's the return on my marketing. Because a lot of folks simply say, well, I got 50 new patients and I spent 10000 on marketing and that's how I divide it out. Well, Maybe 40 of those 50 were from internal efforts. You don't know that. You need to get to that, to that point, to that level. And I think the way that we get there is a continued professionalization of the space. And I think it's things like investors coming in and asking those questions of, do you measure X, Y, Z? And a lot of us don't. But I think five years from now, like if you look at what happens when markets consolidate, when subsectors like ours consolidate, when you look at that, I, I foresee five years from now, you're going to see more consolidation, larger you know, groups backed by private equity, more people knowing people who have sold like, hey, be sure that you tighten up X, Y, Z. So you get that knowledge just from there. When you get to where people have sold before, gone through the gamut and really from their mouth, not just mine, able to say, hey, it's like a congressional hearing <laughs> and here are the questions they're going to ask. That starts waking up the market overall. And then I think you're going to have resources because what that then does, if you start forecasting forward is you're looking at a space that right now you can't even find consolidation stats. Uh, it's probably two, three percent. If that five years from now, these are things we're going to keep track of is it's 20 percent consolidated and people are going to start asking when are multiples going to come down, so on and so forth. And what that ends up doing also is bringing you asked the question earlier, it's going to bring entrepreneurial minds into the space and it's going to open up. So someone who maybe today has one location and maybe is listening and was like, you know what, I've wanted to do three or four. I actually had no idea that this was an option for me. You're going to start waking up those minds as well. So I think the next few years are really going to be interesting because it's going to wake up the market a little bit in a good way, I think. I think if you go through this process once, you get you get like an MBA, like a mini MBA. I think even working with the consulting side with you, you know, your team is teaching people how to run a business as if they were sitting in Harvard at a classroom learning about, you know, all these different things. I think that's one part of it is you walk away from this knowing how to run a business successfully because you've been taught. Like and I use the word taught, you've been taught every day how to do things better. But I would say the second thing is, you know, in the industry with investors coming in, there will come a point where right now we're all fortunate where we make money regardless. Right. If you run a crappy business here, you're going to still make a lot of money because the patients keep coming in. There's not enough of us to take, you know, take care of all of them, not enough good ones, at least. 
So you're you're successful in spite of or despite your own shortcomings here. There is no need yet to button it up because you're still making money. But I think as we professionalize, MSOs become a bigger thing, investment money comes in, you won't have a choice to survive on your block unless you do the things that these people are doing innately as they run businesses. And so I think, you know, the lesson I would say people who are listening is start now, learn now, take, you know, take Ben's advice to go get a consultant, a performance coach, a, you know, an alignment coach, whoever that may be for your goals for five years, 10 years, and start chipping away on it today. Because if you want to compete in five years and you're not there yet, you're going to have a long way to catch up to compete with, you know, the 74 folks who are coming to you saying, who's the next big best thing to buy? By the way, I'm going to scale that thing to 10 locations. And now there's a million of them and they're not going to be able to make it. Like it's just not going to work. So I think that the investment money, as I look at it, people are very, very scared. As you know, they're panicking in the streets. I think there couldn't be a better thing for the industry. I think there couldn't be a better moment for it to happen as well because compliance is becoming very structured and rigid. And without this, we don't have an impetus to change. So I think it's, I think it's a blessing for all of us personally. I'm going to get hate mail for saying that. I'm going to get hate DMs for saying it's a blessing to have PE firms coming into our space. Don't shoot me, guys. I really mean it. Well, it, it, you're, you're not wrong. I mean, really, if you do invest in yourself, you, you know, you brought up an executive coach. If you invest in yourself or your business, whatever it may be, it doesn't have to be us, whatever it may be, invest in your business. Uh, there's a return on that. There's a good return on that. So these aren't things that are punitive. I think what you said is actually very positive, which is, you know, beyond the top line, be sure that you're running it as a business because you are taking a risk. Uh, you brought up compliance. You are taking a risk. Uh, even on the expense side, you're having to compete with others. And, you know, the light is on our industry in a good way. It's something that's very exciting. I mean, I can go into the tailwinds uh, of this industry, if you want another glossary term of like, you know, health and wellness being popular worldwide. Uh, we're supposed to grow as a subsector 15% the next decade, 18% uh, in the US, 15% worldwide. Uh, you know, a decade, a decade and a half ago, maybe it was a 50 year old female. Uh, you know, who was going to places like ours and they weren't advertising it. It was a bit hush hush. Now it's 20 to 30 year olds. It's preventative now. Males are getting into it. Oh, by the way, there's no insurance. It's cash. Um, and the people behind this driving this industry, they're fascinating. So you have every advantage right now uh, as a subsector. And I think if you tighten those few things up and those are easy things like you know, people like us or an executive coach or whomever, they actually take that off your hands to where hopefully you can sleep better at night. You know, we always like to say, and we practice it in our, in our firm as well, like I'm good at certain things, but you don't want me near your marketing. Uh, you know, we did Instagram live once and I couldn't even log in. Like those things should be kept <laughs> that, away from that me. That is so true. I totally forgot about the fact that like, how do you get this thing to work? Yeah. Oh, and, memories. And, and, and really the lesson there is let go of the wheel and let the professionals take it. And if you do that, and if you have a team around you, that's what's going to allow you to build something really, really nice. Well, I think as we kind of wind down here, which is, it's, I can't believe it's already been an hour, but I think what you guys have done that I appreciate is you've taken a keen interest in the industry. Like you've really jumped in with both feet in the deep end, like in the tidal wave and said, we're going to go all in and learn everything. And so you're everywhere. So those of you who are, you know, keep up with AMSPA, you guys are all the boot camps, doing things at boot camp, which I think is a great place to learn about how to start your business from day one, like how to get things in order. We talk about KPIs a lot. I know Terry Ross is there doing some KPI talks. You guys are there talking about businesses. But 
you know, reach out to people like Ben and learn because you're doing it, right? You're becoming a student in the industry, so should people who are listening. But you're coming up next at AMSPA. What city? What's coming next? Do you even know? Next is Chicago. Oh, Chicago. So, yeah. Okay, so, so you have that. Fun. Then July, you're at the Aesthetic Show. At the Aesthetic Show, yes. And then I think another AMSPA boot camp in New York. Okay. And then you have Aesthetic Next, Aesthetic Next which you guys September. have to come. You're doing a, a two-hour summit at Aesthetic Next about really this whole idea of M&A, your practice, how to get your checklist together, get prepared with a few special guests that we're yet to disclose because we're waiting on a few things to go down. So um, you'll have a little army up there with you. But I think it's going to be a great panel of like, here's the people who do this every day, like the real stories from the field of like, I've been through it, or I'm the person on the buy side, the sell side. So Definitely, guys. It's a free workshop, so make sure you sign up for that for the Aesthetic Next. But at Aesthetic Show, are you doing the same kind of thing, a, um, a class or speaking, or what's your what's your deal there? Yeah, I think Aesthetic Show, I think we're doing two. I think one of them is with a platform in the space that already has multiple locations. Um, so they would be what you'd consider a buyer, a strategic buyer. Um, so you get to hear from both sides to your point. And I think that's where it's powerful is when you realize that, okay, we're both saying the same thing. Um, and I don't think we'll practice before that. And then uh, we're also speaking with a CPA firm around business building and KPIs and, you know, why your financial should be clean and quality of earnings and all this stuff that puts people to sleep. And why a bookkeeper is not a CPA. Very please, different. Please touch on that because that's a big misnomer in our industry. But, okay, so we know you're coming to SAG next September. You'll have a booth there. In the meantime, if we want to find you and find Skytel, give us how to find out your contact information, sign up for a consultation, the whole shebang. Yeah, so I think you can reach out to me directly. It's uh, Hernandez, H-E-R-N-A-N-D-E-Z, at skytailgroup.com. Uh, skytail and then group.com. Uh, and that's our website as well. So you can also find our team there uh, and a way to get a hold of us there as well if you want to reach out to the office. But uh, yeah, we're always happy to information share whatever you need. And you have fun things on your Instagram lately, lots of like little nuggets of value of running your business. Your Instagram is looking really good, Ben. I have to tell you, the marketing is looking really good. You know, I, I'm a student there. I'll, I'll read those articles. Um, our consultants, you know, we touched on them earlier. Some of them have built and sold groups. Uh, some of them have been CEOs for private equity backed firms, like 100 19 location dental group CEO. Um, so their knowledge is impressive. So uh, I read them as well. But uh, thank you. Yeah, they're good. And I think the one thing that I would say about you guys before we kind of roll off is I feel like you hire slow and you hire the right people. Like your team is a team of all stars. You can tell that they're all carefully curated. You know, you've sourced the right talent to know the right thing to, to fill a gap. I feel like it's a great model for anyone to say, don't hire because they have a beating heart and a pulse. You know, hire them because they're the perfect talent to fit your perfect hole in the business. And you guys have brought on lots of new talent recently. So congratulations on that, which I know is a hard thing to do. Onboarding sucks. I, I tell you, onboarding is terrible. But you guys are doing it beautifully. So, well, Thank you. any last words you want to have for us here at For the Record for our listeners? I think we touched on a lot. I think, you know, really I would say uh, – we're in a fantastic time in, in a fantastic space. And, you know, our suggestion would be, you know, run your business efficiently, treat it like a business. And we know you put blood, sweat and tears and effort into this. Uh, so be sure that if you are thinking of monetizing to be sure that you're getting the right value with the right partner. But, uh, you know, really enjoyed our chat. Thank you so much, Tiffany. 
Well, guys, we'll be here again next week for our season finale, episode 40 of season two. We'll see you next time. Thanks for listening to another episode of For the Record. This podcast is not intended to provide legal or medical advice. It's for entertainment, education, and information purposes only. For more information on this week's guest or to get started with Aesthetic Record, email us at info at aestheticrecord.com. Be sure to tune in next week for more fresh perspectives on disrupting the status quo and surviving in the aesthetics industry.